Commodities, late night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddities where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off-kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times, they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Zach. And I'm Rob. We are continuing this week on Cinemodities. The third week of Nope Stober. That's what we're calling it, right, Zach? Nope Stober? As long as we don't summon the demon. Yes. Okay. Nope Stober, November, third week. We are talking about movies that do not exist. But we have a documentary to at least give us some idea about what they could have been like. Or more in this case, I would say, what the story behind their deterioration is. I have to say, I will throw it over to Zach, because, of course, as is November, his choice, this movie, or this documentary is as well. Uh, this is the best one we've seen in November so far. This was a great story. Um, I was, I, I never knew kind of anything about this, the director, anything he had directed previously. But, Zach, I'll let you get into it. What are we talking about this week in November? We're talking about a documentary that has maybe one of the longest titles of any movie ever made. <laughs> that's really called- why that's really why I wanted you to say it, Zach, because I don't think I can handle it. <laughs> exactly. Lost Soul colon, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau. Colon movie film for theaters. <laughs> oh dear. But yes, we were talking about, like Rob said, part of November. This is the well, this is a weird one. It's the first time on in our series that we actually have a finished product. It's not the ideal final product by any way, shape, or means, but there is a final iteration. We actually have a script we could look mm-hmm. up. So we're actually doing a little better this time, whereas with Jordorowski, we just had a madman yelling at us for an hour and a half. <laughs> in Death of Superman Lives, where it was kind of an incoherent mess as to what direction the story was going to eventually go in. Yeah. We actually have something relatively concrete here, which is a a theme with this series, or at least as it progresses. Yeah, okay, that's a good point. I'm glad you bring that up. So I guess that leads me to one of the questions I wanted to ask you, Zach. Um, as, as I think we've stated implicitly which we'll state more explicitly now. This is about The Island of Dr. Moreau, the film directed by Richard Stanley that did not come to fruition. But of course, as Zach said, there is, I guess, some iteration or revival of that project that became, is it Frankenheimer's Island of Dr. Moreau? I don't think it's anybody's. I don't think anybody wants their name associated with what eventually uh, got made. That's fair. But a movie was released, uh, and it had... Um, it wasn't the greatest uh, received, I should say, but we'll get more into that. But yeah, so I guess the question I have for you, Zach, is have you seen that movie? Yeah, I saw it. Oh, God. It was after this documentary I watched it. It's really unremarkable. I remember watching it, kind of <laughs> expecting this, this like, uh, unmitigated disaster. And you watch it, and it's it's serviceable. It's Okay. It's not like, it's funny, like, they mention it. They're like, it's amazing that we got a final product out of it, out of the, the shoot of this movie. <laughs> yeah. And if you didn't know any better, you just watched that movie and think it's just a mundane interpretation of that, st- or adaptation of the H.G. Wells story. Mm-hmm. But, uh, no, without any of the ba- the colorful backstory to it, it's it's fine. It's it, it's a decent time waster. Okay, so I had I've seen the movie as well. 
but I had seen it years ago. Like, I saw it a long, long time ago. And I don't really remember all of it, but I think I did not like it. So it was interesting to kind of see this film, this documentary about the history behind it, and the story, and Richard Stanley, who he is, how his kind of, you know, his tale weaves into this movie so gracefully. It was a, it was a great, great adventure this kind of movie took me on, giving me that history. Like I said, I really liked it. I think it's the best story we've had in November so far. So right on. Well, that's one of the fun things about November. It didn't really dawn on me because just like how I've mentioned with the projection booth doing their Death of Superman Lives episode. I think they did a Jodorowsky's Dune episode. Oh, jeez. And, what are they, they, they copying us? <laughs> and they did a Doomed episode, too. Was that I didn't think of it this way until it was brought up on there. Was all these like making of documentaries of films that never got made, all were like produced and released all within like the span of like a year of each other. Oh. Like, in 2015... Well, I think I guess Jodorowsky's Doom was the first one because that came out in early 2014. But from like the span of like m- spring 2014 to like fall 2015, you had all these films come out, and I think there were even a couple more that that were Kickstarters mm-hmm. that didn't even get made. Okay, so it's interesting. I never thought about that. That all these documentaries were all released in the span of a couple months of each other, which wow. it, it's, it, it's a dumb fact, but it is a fact nonetheless. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. You know, I think it's a, it's like one of those moments where you have to ask yourself, coincidence? I think not, right? What, bum, bum, bum. what greater movement is at work here, Zach? Because that's what we have to get to the bottom of in these episodes that we do, right? <laughs> oh, that's the whole thesis of cinema, these beyond those the bland movie nonsense. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but no, like, like Rob was saying, this episode, this uh, documentary is about the 1996 film? I believe 97? so. 96-97 film, which was made eventually by John Frankenheimer, which stars Val Kilmer, Marlon Brando, David Thewlis, and it's essentially... A subpar adaptation of the H.G. Wells story. Mm-hmm. And what this documentary basically does is that that, that film, the 96-97 Brando Kilmer film, was originally helmed by filmmaker Richard Stanley, who has had a very limited background in film. He was really big in the early 90s until this film, film's production, which went belly up and basically torpedoed his filmmaking career in any sort of official capacity it torpedoed his life almost for a while <laughs> i don't think it torpedoed his life because i've done some research on Richard. he was Stanley. like living in the australian jungle at one point well that's i guess okay well, okay i wanted to lay, <laughs> like, get our ducks in a row because i know a lot about this because like i agree with rob out of all these films this is my favorite this is probably one of my favorite documentaries of all time i because I, I feel like I have to stop you there, and I and I, I, I agree with you. We should we should structure this. We should do this appropriately because I know I could jump all over the place. And I want to I want to say that I agree with the point you just said. I think this is one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. Good story or not, they knew how to structure this information and provide it to us in an interesting and informative way. Oh, definitely, because I've watched this countless times as. The copy I shared with Rob was, again, this was, I think, middle of 2015. Mm-hmm. I had heard about this, and every once in a while, I'd get, like, a Voodoo credit, a, a Voodoo.com credit. I remember, like, I think it was Walmart. If you bought, like, a, 
a pre-made pizza from Walmart. There was actually like a six dollar <laughs> voodoo voodoo card included. It was like, oh, like pizza in the movie. That's like three episodes of Law and Order. Six dollars on voodoo. <laughs> The <laughs> Rob sayings I wasted the money watching this, and I should have bought two episodes, three episodes of Law and Order. Wait, is is the copy that you got on Voodoo the one that I got to watch? Yes, you got. Oh, that. then no, you didn't waste it, Zach. You didn't waste it at all. I'll give you three episodes of Law and Order anytime you want. So no, so as I I, I got this on Voodoo, I knew this was out, and I figured, okay, it's kind of not like a lark, but basically mm-hmm. it'd be something like, oh, it's like I wanted to watch this. Like I think I still hadn't seen Death of Superman Lives because John Schnepp kept it like at a $45 price point. Doomed, I don't think, was out yet because Doomed was always being promised. And I was like, oh, it's coming. I think I followed them on Facebook. And like everyone was like, when's this coming out? And they're like, it's coming soon, we promise. I think that was the last one that came out was Doomed. Okay. Uh, again, Jodorowsky's Doom is long. I mean, like I said, I, I like Jodorowsky, even though I don't, particular at the time i didn't really particularly like that what that film was kind of going for i, I like the idea of going delving into something that doesn't exist yeah there's something there's something fun about that 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 it, it takes a lot of effort to research something like this but the appropriate amount of time effort and money mm-hmm. to really do it right and i don't think you get a better example of that other than this i have to and agree I, i've always wanted to buy the blu-ray in this past summer i actually did buy the blu-ray because it was finally cheap enough. It was finally a decent price point. And I wanted to watch all the extras. Which... Oh, yeah. There's 45... Like, the, the extras are pretty good. There's not a lot of them. But there's at, one of the parts that's great. There's, there's an additional 45 minutes of Richard Stanley talking. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> that is gold right there. <laughs> and that was one of the best parts. because it, it's, like, it's all part of his interview. It's just stuff they obviously cut out. For different reasons, oh, but no, man. it's like we're gonna have to get to Richard Stanley's speech. We oh, need Richard to Stanley. specifically talk about his speech. It was so confusing to me, but we'll get there. Keep going with your point, Zach. Rich, Mr. No, but like, Mister no, Special Edition. <laughs> I think I funny. There's actually two versions of this on Blu-ray. There's the regular edition, and there's the House of Pain version, Ooh. which which is the Blu-ray, which with the regular release it comes with i think a dvd version of the movie and it comes with like like a bonus cd where it's like richard stanley reads to you the island of dr moreau <laughs> i'm not joking oh, that's legit sign it. me up <laughs> i think that version's still available i think it's like 30 dollars. we have to go looking for it mm, christmas is coming up zach <laughs> I think so far, I think this year I've told you I want a human skull and to know who it's from, and now I want this Blu-ray. <laughs> you want the CD. You don't want the Blu-ray. You want the CD where Richard Stanley reads you the Isle of the Doctor. Yeah, Bob. however you can get that to me, yes. <laughs> oh, dear. But but no, so, like, I remember watching this. I found it, like, utterly fascinating because I was never aware of this movie. Like, I, I might have come across it at one point because I've never been a big H.G. Wells fan. Sure. I've never found the story of the Island of Dr. Moreau that interesting. It's like, oh, I think I've seen it parodied more times than anything else. <laughs> it's definitely a low-hanging fruit for things like The Simpsons and Family Guy, just any sort okay. of parody, sitcom, whatever. And so, but no, like over time, because I've had this now for over three years, I, I have to say, like much like how Rob has me, or I guess how Rob watches, like most of the movies we've talked about, like just a perpetual loop. Rob's house is just filled with mirrors. I'm not, oh my god. It's, uh, Rob's house is filled with like monitors and it's just different things playing all the time. And, and mirrors. Is, so I can see the monitor. Well, that too. So then, no matter where he looks, if there's not a monitor, he can see, see the monitor. And this is one of the few ones I have to say that maybe at the very least 
once a year, probably twice a year, I would just put this on, like his background noise, okay. or even something to kind of fall asleep to, because I found it oddly like soothing. Okay. It's, it's, it's a very relaxed documentary where it's not like, oh, it's not like John Schnepp going around with John Peters and doing all stuff. Or Jodorowsky, like, well, it's funny, trying to watch Jodorowsky's, like, doing as you're, like, nodding off, it's hard to do because most of it's subtitled. Yeah. But no, this this is, like, I, beyond the fact that it's a very thorough, comprehensive documentary as to what happened with the behind-the-scenes stuff and why the mm-hmm. movie fell apart under, I guess it's not fair to say this, but for lack of a better phrase, phrasing it, like uh, Richard Stanley, Richard Stanley's like leadership. Mm-hmm. This is just a very it, it it's evenly paced. It's not all, all over the place. Yeah, it, and considering that a lot of the major players in the film aren't even in this documentary, I think that's even more amazing. Because like you think about it, like we watch Death of Superman Lives or Jodorowsky's Dune, we have Tim Burton, we have Alejandro Jodorowsky, and even though we have Richard Stanley here, like some of the biggest players in this are Marlon Brando, who's dead, Val Kilmer, whose who's career dead. is dead, <laughs> <laughs> Frankenheimer, who knows, who's dead, who's dead. Oh, he is for he real. He's dead. Oh He's man. Dead. Okay. Um, and I think, that, and plus, you have a, you have Mike DeLuca, who I think I've referenced before, who's the I've read a lot about ever since I read that book on the Freddy versus Jason development hell, because uh, he was yeah. one of the major executives at New Line in the '90s. He's a huge player in all this. That's he's alive, but he's not involved with this documentary at all. David Thewlis, who, if you watch the documentary closely, considering that he's the star of the mm-hmm. film, you <laughs> wouldn't know he's even in this movie yeah, based on for, what they talk about him. Yeah, I for think, real. Uh, and that's why I think is fascinating is that you do get this really comprehensive picture, and it's more or less based on the cast and crew, and not the major hitters that are the focal point of the documentary okay yeah yeah that's a that's a good point yeah like i said i i don't know where you want to drop because i could just I, i'm afraid of pinballing here because sure sure I, so i i, I, I think drop. we've i think we've established that zach and i love this documentary uh it's one of the the well best structured documentaries we've ever seen you should check it out um but we have to talk about what goes on in this documentary because i think that gets Directly to, I think, one of the last questions we're going to have to ask, which is, of course, the cinemodity status of the movie that never was. All right. I'm cutting you off right now. Uh Uh-oh. When it comes to cinemodity's food item, Uh I know where Rob is going with this. Uh Uh-oh. We are not eating Nelson De La Rosa. We are not eating a human. I I figure as soon as I saw him, (laughs) Rob's food item is going to be, we're going to eat the world's smallest man. It'll be great. So I, I know Rob's doing that. And I'm, I'm taking the low-hanging fruit off the table. Whether that was going to be his snack item or not, I don't know. But I am officially, uh, with the word processor of the gods, I am striking Nelson De La Rosa from the rest, <laughs> from, as a, from a food item. He can still be involved, but we cannot eat the world's smallest man, circa 1997. That's fair. Zach has uh, established this. I'm not ready to go to snacks yet. I guess we'll see later on if that played a role or not. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reserve my comment until then. How about that, Zach? Sounds good. <laughs> okay. But Zach, is, I, I understand the motion that you have presented. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> the board of directors of the Cinemodities Restaurant recognizes the motion, Zach. I think the next thing we need to talk about is Richard Stanley. Because he's a big part of this movie, and he's a big part of the movie that never was. So... 
Richard Stanley. I guess our history with him. I did not really know about him before this movie. I didn't, I don't think I, I know I've never seen Hardware. I don't think I've ever even heard of Hardware, which is the movie, of course, in this documentary they say was his uh, initial success, I guess. I know I'm going to have to watch Hardware because Zach gave it to me earlier today, I believe. <laughs> um, but were you familiar with Richard Stanley prior to this documentary? I had never heard of Richard Stanley prior to this. Okay. I think we joked in our Jodorowsky's Dune episode. He shows up there. Yeah. And it's like, oh, man, it's Richard Stanley. He's like the only person that would probably be the most appropriate for talking about a film and everything get made. And no, I never knew anything about him. I never had heard of hardware. I had no idea. Like, again, yeah. the only thing, the only part of this where I had a little bit of inkling of what this was and they mentioned the documentary, was that this is clearly where the mini-me thing came from. Oh, yes. I really did enjoy that uh, kind of comparison, for sure. But no, I never heard of Richard Stanley prior to seeing this. All right, me, me neither. Have you uh, watched Hardware yet? Yes, I'm actually, as I was getting prepared for this episode, which I think this might be the first time where I've actually done more research than Rob has on, on a movie topic, uh -oh. even the ones that I suggest... Uh -oh. I I watched I've had hardware for some time now and I watched okay. it and I tried watching it once and I actually fell asleep in the first five minutes and then woke up at the credits. There's a really <laughs> cool credit song in this. Nice. Rob probably knows problem probably knows the band inside out and backwards. preparation for this i went and watched hardware and i'm not right i watched hardware and i really loved it like i was right shocked on. by how much i enjoyed hardware okay i'll have to check it out for sure yeah hardware is great like hardware is one of those movies where i don't know why people don't talk about it like it's very well made and there's really i can't think of i know like the tagline like for one of the posters is like it's the terminator for the 90s yeah they show that in the documentary right yeah in like the one we're talking about today yeah, that like that's fair. It, it's it's an easy comparison, but okay. I but it, it's more than that, and I don't know why this movie hardware has not gotten more attention. Mm -hmm. Like I don't know. Like it's kind of like like freaked in that same ballpark where you have this really inventive, creative movie that's well made. Sure, and nobody talks about it. Gotcha. Don't I, maybe it's a rights issue. Maybe whoever owns the rights to it is just really picky about who they give it out to. Who knows? Or they yeah, the price tax too high. Always a possibility. Because in this case, D Disney does not own hardware. They might. Mm -hmm. Maybe by the time you're listening, this Disney will buy the rights <laughs> to hardware. But as unlike Freak, they do not own own that film yet. By the um, time you're listening to this, Disney might have bought Cinemodities. <laughs> oh, we, we can only hope we get that sweet, sweet Disney money. I don't Bob want, your I don't want that. I, don't want I have that some blood loose money. change in my pocket. How does 48 cents sound? <laughs> and a paperclip. <laughs> and a paperclip. A bent paperclip. Um, and a half-opened condom. Oh, now you have our attention, Mr. Ryder. <laughs> uh, anyway, though, so I watched that. I tried – it's funny. 
in the projection booth episode on Jodorowsky's Dune, mm. they say that they talk about Dust Devil, which is the second feature length film. And they say that in that film, Dust Devil, Richard Stanley painted symbols in the background where I guess whatever these symbols mean that if you if you pirate the movie, they'll put a curse on you. Oh. And so I'm like, nope, you have to officially buy that. And I got, it's funny. Uh, I figure <laughs> I have to buy that now. I'm not going to be cursed by Richard Stanley, which I think is really funny considering what goes on in this documentary. Yeah, that actually, you know, that makes so much sense. Because <laughs> one of the things, of course, I was going to say, talking about Richard Stanley, which I feel is the topic we're on now, he is... A mystical motherfucker. That's the best way to put <laughs> yeah. it. I mean, literally. So we're, we're, we'll get to his speech. Maybe speech should have come before this, but you know, he has no separation in his mind. I think paragraphs don't exist. I don't think spaces exist to this man. Every thought connects to the next in a completely fluid way, according to his thoughts, it seems. And there's a seed in, in the documentary lost soul where he basically says something like, to win over Marlon Brando, I turned to witchcraft. I looked to my friend in Britain who had Skip shown... the warlock. Skip the warlock. Skip the warlock, yes. I turned to my friend in Britain, Skip the warlock, who had shown, uh, previously demonstrated invisible mending. And I figured he would be best to help me with this project. And this comes out of nowhere. He's just completely monotone like he always is. And you're just like... Knowing that the odds were stacked against me, I resorted to witchcraft. Um, at that point in time, I was friendly with this warlock chappy um, in England, Dr. Edward James Featherstone, um, commonly known as Skip. So Skip had been shown to demonstrate his ability to fix things to do invisible mending before. So I said, my God, Skip, you've got to help me. Um, you've got to save my movie. Literally, when I watched it, he's like, uh, I turned to witchcraft. And I'm like, oh, is this a joke? And no, it's not a joke. He's completely serious about this. I loved it. I loved it. I was enthralled by this man. <laughs> well, it's funny you mention that, because in the projection booth episode, the host is talking. He's like, I remember hearing like years ago, that Richard Stanley did what he said. He put like the symbols that like, if you tried piloting yeah. this, it would put a curse on you. And he goes, I just never believe he says, I just figured he'd said that as a way of like, maybe preventing a few people from ever downloading it illegally. He goes back after watching that. I wholeheartedly believe that Richard Stanley cursed his own movie. <laughs> no, Richard Stanley. I, as I keep watching this and I keep finding new things in it, I find him oddly hypnotic. Oh, I, I agree. He's a, he's a very um, intriguing person and persona at the same time. Definitely. And that's why... Okay, because Rob said he is monotone. Like, that's the weird thing. Is, like, he'll be talking. His tone does not change. Like, he, like, he doesn't really get too excited. Like whether, I know very early they show him like um, displaying the concept art that mm -hmm. he has. And he's monotone there. He's getting, and especially this all happened at, like almost 20 years afterwards. So he can, I would imagine a lot of he's probably callous to a lot of it now, but <laughs> yeah, but it's just, again, he's monotone about everything. He doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't get excited. He doesn't like, he doesn't do, um, he doesn't really do hand gestures. He doesn't talk with his hands. Yeah. And he doesn't pause. I find he doesn't, he's, he's not paused like a natural human does. It's very hard to understand when he's switching topics. Uh, 
honestly, I think he only knows stream of consciousness. That's how he operates, it seems to me, is he is just a stream of consciousness individual. What he thinks is what he says. It's stream of, but the thing that's interesting, though, is that it's, it is stream of consciousness to a certain degree. Because we also, I would imagine everything that he's saying here, he's planned out mentally. Like, I, I don't think mm. at any point that he's, like, going off the reservation. Like, he's not doing a Zach. Where he'll be in the middle of talking about X, and he'll automatically go on a tangent about W. <laughs> He's not that type of person. I think he he is methodical. Okay. Or at least that's the impression that we get because because as I was watching this, I kept trying to figure out like, okay, clearly he was not getting along with people in Hollywood. Yes, he yeah they they seem to have conflicting personalities. Is might be the easiest way to put it. Yeah, and I was trying to figure out, okay, so what's the issue here? Because obviously that, and that happens a lot in Hollywood where people just don't connect or there's a, there's a, a failure of communication. But the thing that really, cause they, because they don't really talk about it much here. I don't blame This is a 100-minute long documentary. Mm-hmm. They, they could spend hours if they wanted to, but then who, I think they said, because the, they, in the projection booth episode, they interviewed a director, and he says his initial cut came in at five hours. Oh my God, that'd be amazing to see. I want that cut. <laughs> Much like the eight hour, was it the four hour 8K cut of Titanic Scene yeah. the Mess? Yes. I want the five hour cut of Lost Soul. Oh yeah. And they mention that with with him though, that or I'm sorry, in the documentary, they, they talk about how he was eventually fired, what was it, three, three, four days into production. Mm-hmm. And it's like you don't like as we've learned from recent Hollywood films, you really don't get fired if you are going to get fired you get fired before photog- principal photography or you get fired three quarters of the way through yeah there's a, fi- there's a there's an established time frame to this stuff unfortunately <laughs> exactly so the vibe that i get from this was and, and it's alluded to in this because i know there's, there's like one of the producers that says we should probably include a line item in the budget that says a director replacement which yeah. Yeah. if there ever was a bad omen it's that <laughs> in that I'm thinking that they clearly did not like him from the beginning. You know, I, I have to agree with you. That's the kind of the sense that I got that he didn't come across as a bad person to me. I mean, you know, there's a difference, I guess I should say. Like, Jodorowsky, I thought, was a bad human. Richard Stanley is more of just a difficult human. They're different things, you know? We'll get into Val Kilmer, where he falls on that scale. But Richard Stanley... I. I think even one of the stories that the New Line Cinema people tell, what is it, the president or whatever, the, the Bob Shea, yeah, Bob I think Shea, his oh name yeah. is. Oh he's yeah. like, there's a there's a scene in this documentary where Bob Shea is like, I met Richard Stanley, you know, he sat down in this meeting and he was wearing like weird clothes, long black hair, blah, blah, blah. But I, you know, I was waiting for him to do something goofy. And I'm like sitting here like, oh boy, this is going to be a good story. But the story just goes on to with Bob Shea saying like the goofy thing that Richard Stanley did was take four sugars in his coffee. And Bob Shea actually has the line, no one takes four sugars in their coffee and then leaves a good citizen. I'm pretty certain that's what he says. Like, it's a little tough to hear the last words because he starts laughing, but I'm fairly certain he says, no one takes four sugars in their coffee and then leaves a good citizen. I thought that uh, Stanley was uh, somewhat unusual guy. He almost got away with not doing anything goofy, and then he did do one thing goofy. When my assistant came in and offered 
everybody refreshments, he said, yes, I would like a cup of coffee. How do you take it? And he said either three or four sugars. And when I heard that, I said, this, there's something going on here that I uh, don't think I completely understand, but nobody takes four sugars in a cup of coffee and walks out <laughs> as, a, as a solid citizen. In today's day and age, I think everybody takes four sugars in their coffee. I think that's the standard. I think coffee ruins your teeth, you know? So I think they were just out to get him from the start. You know, they just didn't well, like him. Whatever he did that was weird was just, you know, fuel to the fire. Well, how I, I for the longest time, I interpreted that line a different way. Oh, okay. I, I think it's wrong, but how I think my interpretation makes sense of it, sense of it a little bit more. Was he's at again? The, the secretary comes in, offers him a cup of coffee. He goes, mm-hmm. and she goes, "How many sugars will you have?" He goes, three or four." Yeah. And how I interpret that was, it's it's indecisiveness. Think about it. somebody says, "How many sugars do you want?" I want three sugars. How many do you want? I want four. The fact that he says three or four means that he's indecisive, and it's just the whole idea of like if you can't make a decision about how many sugars you want in your coffee, how are you going to do it when it comes to a thirty-something million-dollar budget? Okay, and, and I know that's wrong because he does say, like Rob says, he does have that final quip with, "I've never heard of anybody taking four sugars in their coffee." Yeah, Bob Shea specifically says four. He doesn't talk about the choice, but I see yeah. where you're coming from. For the longest time, I interpret it that way because that would make sense if somebody's indecisive. I know that's one of the biggest things in Hollywood. I've read articles from like different filmmakers that like Hollywood would rather have somebody make a deliberately wrong decision. As long as they said, I'm making this decision and I'm kind of sticking to my guns. Fair. They don't that's like it where they're wishy-washy. Yeah. That, that how- explanation is understandable. Absolutely. All right. So we're on the same page with that, though. But that's the weird thing with, with Richard Stanley because he, again, obviously we don't know what he was like 20 years ago or when this mm-hmm. film was made uh, yep. 18 years previously. So we can only surmise much like how other things. But – because in preparation for this, I read his script. Oh, okay. And as I'm reading it, and again, and to be fair, a script is a very specific component of making a film. Obviously, you have uh, obviously actors, you have rehearsals, mm-hmm. you have uh, uh, cinematography, you have lighting, you got ever you got set, you got build, craft got- services. Craft services, <laughs> um, peacock feathers, ice buckets from Marlon Brando's head, <laughs> Nelson yep. De La Rosa. Um, so I get where certain – but as I was reading the script, though, the script is, I'd say, oh, it's not great. It's not bad. It's, it's better than what we got with this film, with the film that eventually came to fruition. But as I was watching this um, – or I'm sorry, reading it, it's like, oh, okay – this this is solid. Like it's not reinventing the wheel. It's it's very predictable outside maybe one aspect of it. Okay. There's it's a little subversive toward the end where I think there's one part that Rob would really really like. <laughs> right. Um, there's one part I think Rob would really like. Rob's like you know it's might be my favorite film of all time. <laughs> oh okay. Uh, we'll we'll get to that in a moment. But as I was reading it though. I could believe all the actors that were cast. Like I could very easily believe Marlon Brando's Doctor Doctor Moreau. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, what's it? Val Kilmer as Dieter von Kunth. Get it right. That's, that's true. That is one hundred percent accurate. Uh, Montgomery. 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 Yes, I could believe Val Kilmer is Montgomery. 
And it's funny, as I was thinking about, because I know they talk about how Rob Morrow was originally cast yeah. as as Prendick, which I know this is a th- it's funny. They don't talk about that in the actual documentary, but in a lot of the superfluous media I've read on this, that was a major sticking point that nobody wanted to call the main character by their name from the book. Uh, okay. And I know, and that was one of the first things they changed when Richard Stanley got booed. They changed the name of the main character from Prendick to Edward Douglas. What's wrong with Prendick? Apparently, they didn't like the word Dick being in his name because it made the movie a joke. Yes. Get your mind out of the gutter, gutter Hollywood. <laughs> As I was watching it, though, I could definitely see David Thewlis more than Rob Morrow. To be fair, I've not seen Rob Morrow in a lot of stuff. So, mm-hmm. who knows? You know, can you take a wild guess at what I saw him in last, Zach? Northern Exposure? Ah, Law and Order's Vu. <laughs> oh, he's one of those? <laughs> he, yeah, he was an extra, or uh, a cameo, I guess, on a, an episode, I think, in season 18. Gotcha. So, I could definitely, like I said, like the the makings of this were here, like envisioning it in my head, and based on what I've seen of what his concept art was. Yes, I could see this, like, like even like obviously Marlon Brando's dead, so we couldn't make the movie now, but doing it with him, I think if Marlon Brando was a, a team player, which he clearly is not. <laughs> okay. So I no, I think all the pieces were here. So. I don't like obviously the 90s era of filmmaking is a lot different than, than today's era of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. But I could I I couldn't see why this couldn't get made. Like this the real okay. Like, okay, this is the part that I think Rob's gonna like. The movie basically ends like like Dr. Moreau dies, spoiler alert. Ah! And, <laughs> yes, and when all the like animal people are like freaking out, mm-hmm. Montgomery is essentially he's such like a hippie like he smokes pot yeah, like yeah. numerous times he says like, he, he says like he has like all the drugs he tells prendick the main character like i have all the drugs you could possibly want just let me know yeah and that's so pretty his... stereotypical of hippie zach but i'll let it slide yes <laughs> but that's how, they, they say it in the script they, they describe him as a like, as an older hippie like, like okay a, a well then well, somebody else's stereotyping doesn't make it okay for you to stereotype zach <laughs> i can only tell you what the script tells me <laughs> So in the last, his last act before spoiler alert, dying in the movie, the script is that, and this is where I think it'd be funny is Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer's Dr. Montgomery strips naked and proceeds to hand out all the drugs to the animal people. <laughs> and they make a point in the script of saying that he basically just hands it on and goes, you want this one? You want, he's like, you want, so, you want some uppers for the downers or you want some downers for the uppers? Why does he, he have to, does he have to be naked to like. A, like associate with the beast people like what I, is the I'm naked guessing, portion i'm guessing that's what his fact going back to like the animalistic because his whole thing like toward the end is like once moreau is dead there's the animal like the, the animal coup d'etat yeah, yeah the uprising he's like i because like prendix like like we can go like we can leave the island blah 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 and he's like f it man i i hate people and so he's like, he's like, I'm just going to go out the way I live. I'm going to sit there, get high, and be happy. And he literally just—they say that he literally just starts passing out the drugs to. His, he has, like, I think they say he has like a, a knapsack filled with pills. He just starts <laughs> giving them out to pe- to all the animal people. Oh man, it's fun well, like that, like that. That's that, an entertaining fun. ending for sure. <laughs> oh, it is. But I think because obviously he dies eventually, and I, that's the sort of ending that would work today. But when you're trying to make a PG-13 film in, like, 1996, yeah, I would imagine fair. a lot of people would be upset about that. Yeah, most likely. And that's, 
like, like I said, like I, I can very easily imagine Val Kilmer doing like that's where like I think this film is well cast because everybody like works because Marlon Brando we only would have been in a little bit like they're correct when they said like oh how many days we need him like I think it was like two weeks they initially said I could believe that because he doesn't have again right. Doctor Moreau never has really a large role in the story um, he's just more of a, a plot device to get everything in motion or to set up the plot yeah yeah. So, like from what I've from what I've read, though, and I know even the book I've referenced the last couple of times, the greatest sci-fi movies never made. This book has its own chapter, and that book's weird because that book was published, I think I said, two thousand eight, and there's a lot of conflicting information in that book to what <laughs> we see in the documentary. Where like you have like like for uh, Balk, like Val Kilmer wasn't a bad person. Yeah, he, he was really nice. She's she's quoted as saying that in the book. Yeah, in the movie, she's like, this is a disaster. Brando and Kilmer just deliberately did everything within their power to sit there, screw yep. this film up. So like I said, I don't want to pinball around too much, though. But no, from what I've gathered about, from what I've read, I don't see why they would have thrown him off this film other than he just rubbed somebody the wrong way. Well, I think I, I think you're, I think we're good so far. I, th- I don't think we pinballed because we went from Richard Stanley into Richard Stanley's script, which is important for the movie that could have been but you just you brought up something that we need to discuss. You know, you say, why would they have taken him off of this movie? It was partially his fault, at least how this documentary describes it, where he wouldn't go to meetings. He wouldn't provide the details to the people who were financing him that you need to do when you're working on this type of project. Like, it, it really seemed to me that it was partially his fault when they got out there in Australia and they started filming, right? Well, I, okay. I, I guess the only, again, that's the weird thing with this is that you have to pick somebody to believe here. Again, sure, Val, sure. Val Kilmer isn't there. Um, Mike DeLuca, the head of the studio at the time, or I guess, uh, or not head of the studio, Mike, Bob Shea was the head of the studio. But I guess he was the, in charge of development, Mike DeLuca. Mm-hmm. And from what I've read about Mike DeLuca, I did some research on New Line as a company. Mike DeLuca was like a womanizer who like got like numerous DWIs. Like he was oh. like a a young Harvey Weinstein. Or I, I guess he. <laughs> or maybe, I, I, maybe that's not fair. I think everybody, every studio head in Hollywood at some point was a was a a Harvey Weinstein. Just yeah. ex, exploiting your your power, just any sense in the sense of just section Caligula. Basically that's, just pleasant, that's just pleasant knowledge right there. <laughs> so I think what happened with Richard Stanley, like Richard Stanley was a, they, they talked about numerous times about his, I, I think it's in the bonus features. I don't know if it's in the film. Sure. But like Marlon, like Richard Stanley says in the bonus features that he's convinced the only reason why Marlon Brando sided with him every time the studio started picking fights with him, with Richard Stanley, was that Marlon Brando could not figure out Richard Stanley's accent. And he goes, I think he kept me around just because he wanted, like he'd say, I'd be talking to him and he'd start to imitate my accent and, I, and he could never figure out where I, where I got my accent from. Yeah, that was not in the movie. I would have remembered that. That is, that is classic Brando. <laughs> and I think, again, I don't know, getting back to my original point though, was that who's the reliable narrator? Like who, like for the sake of this discussion, Everybody gives their own perspectives, and yes, some of them yeah. overlap with others. But we have to pick somebody because I don't like I. Once Rob hasn't seen Hardware, but like you watch Hardware, I have a hard time believing that outside of dealing with Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando's egos, mm-hmm. and considering that 
Richard Stanley was fired before Marlon Brando even showed up to set. Yeah. I'm convinced that... I'm sorry, I, what I meant to say was that after looking at hardware, I'm convinced that there's no way Richard Stanley couldn't have handled this with the okay. right people holding his hand. Because, yes, like both Dust Devil and Hardware are both independent films, completely different than making a film, even though New Line was an independent film studio at that time. I don't think they were owned by Turner yet. Because that's how they, because they originally were, they were purchased, maybe they were, I forget. I think they were purchased by Turner in the early to mid 90s. Then when Turner bought out or merged with AOL. Mm hmm. Not Turner, I guess Time Warner is what I meant to say. And and I think that was the, or the I guess the buyout with AOL Time Warner, that there was this, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to f figure it out though, that maybe, that Richard Stanley maybe didn't sit there and get the support he needed. Okay. Like, okay. I've heard stories, like in my background of understanding Hollywood, like with um, Brad Bird. When Brad Bird made Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, which was his first live-action film, mm -hmm. at that point, he made numerous animation films, yeah, animated yeah. projects, that when that film was in production, Brad Bird was, had, had like an assistant director that essentially like held his hand through production. Okay. And that didn't happen with something like John Carter and Andrew Stanton, mm. where they did not have that support behind them. So like, oh, like, sure. they're taught sure. the ropes. Yeah, they didn't have the person guiding them, you know, who knew how to, they knew how to you navigate know. the mind. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And I think New Line did not have that sort of like they were too small, especially in the nineties. I don't think there was any sort of infrastructure like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think what added insult to injury was that I don't think they liked him because they say that at one point they just wanted his script, and Roman Polanski was going to direct the film. Yeah. And it wasn't until Brando again interceded that that got changed. Okay. And so that's what I'm thinking of is that like we hear stories about like I think at one point it's kind of like a uh, record scratch moment where they're like he climbed up the tree and wouldn't get down one day. <laughs> yeah. Feruza Balk's like, whoa, 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 whoa. When did this happen? Yeah, and, yeah. And I think it just became one of those things where clearly the producers had no faith in him. Like, there's, what, two or three producers in this that were like, again, there's the one guy who just blatantly says, I told, when I was doing the budget, put a line item in here for a new director. Yeah. Which, like, I don't get how, I, I guess this is also, uh, what's the word, all coming out in the wash afterwards. Mm -hmm. But, like, if that's not grounds for a lawsuit, they were deliberately planning of throwing him out. Yep. Like, like that. that's, I, I, I don't know what you could classify that as. But deliberately kind of setting you up to fail, which I guess they can do. If they're paying your salary, they can set you up to fail as much as they want. Uh, but you have numerous producers that were just like, I, I, even though I liked him, I think it's the one guy who has the British accent. He's like, I liked him as a person, but I don't think he could have handled this film. Yeah. And I, and that's definitely, I, I, I don't, again, after what, again, I don't know Dust Devil. I, I am trying to get a hold of a copy of Dust Devil. It's very hard to get because it's like, it, it hasn't been in print for like a decade plus now. I think it's been in print since like 2006. Is that so, a request for me to find it, Zach? <laughs> no, because then we'll get cursed. Uh, well, I'm, we're both already cursed. No, I don't want to no be way. I don't want to be cursed. You don't want that curse? You think that, you think that curse is going to be worse than all the other curses we've gotten so far? Okay, you want to tell the audience what happened to Skip the Warlock? 
I mean, I still got the Skinwalker to deal with as far as curses go, right? Like, what does Skip the Warlock have to do with it? <laughs> Skip the Warlock. Remember, he's the reason why everything fell apart because he asked Skip the Warlock to put the, like, a, a cursed or, like, what was it? Invisible Bewitching mending. Whatever. Invisible mending. <laughs> Invisible mending. And that helped Brando side with him. Then, like, Skip the Warlock started to, like, melt. And, like, his bones started to disintegrate. And then well, that's I when mean, everything you know, fell if apart. You get, if you get a, a, a body-decaying disease, that's what happens to you. As a warlock? Yeah! Anybody. If your body, you know, flesh bacteria, bacteria that eats your flesh, eats your bone, if that happens, that's what happens, you know? You know what? I'm not messing with... I'm not, I'm not messing with Richard Stanley. I don't I'm know if messing. that's the curse we're gonna get <laughs> from that movie, right? Like... Like, what are you assuming? Every curse is like, well, what about, remember the Golden Girls curse where your socks never stay up? You remember that curse? No. Oh, I'm hitting Zach with some old school Golden Girls knowledge right here. <laughs> not not going to elaborate on that at all? That's it. There's nothing to elaborate. I mean, I could describe the plot of the episode <laughs> where it occurs, but that is literally the curse. It's an old Italian curse where, you, you know, you... Your socks will never stay up. They're always going to roll down to your ankles. <laughs> What's so special about this wedding? Dorothy's goddaughter is marrying the grandson of Giuseppe Mangia Cavallo. <laughs> so? Let her tell the story. When I was 14 in Sicily, my father arranged a marriage with a neighbor's son. My dowry was two chickens, a ladle, and a goat to be named later. <laughs> we came from a wealthy family. The day of my wedding, as I stood at the altar, the boy I was to marry was on a cattle boat headed for America. That night, on a tear-stained pillow, I put a curse on him. Curse? Nothing fancy, I remember I said. Giuseppe Mangia Cavallo, from this day forward, may you and all your future generations never know true love. May you be sterile and may all your offspring be sterile. <laughs> may your hair never lie flat. And may your socks always slip down inside your shoes. Okay. Um, We're talking no, about curses, Zach. I'm not messing with Richard Stanley and his magic. Okay, that'll uh -huh. be an update. That'll be an update when Zach comes to you next week and says, Hey, kids, Rob is no longer part of this podcast because he turned into a beetle. <laughs> because he downloaded a Richard Stanley movie off the internet. Oh, yes. I, I think that is probably the capstone to our discussion on Richard Stanley, that he, he can turn people into beetles, right? <laughs> no, not, not touching that. Oh, okay. Well, Zach, I think the next thing I would have to talk about because we've been getting at it so much with how this movie could have turned out, I do want to talk to a good extent about the cinemodity status of this movie. Are you okay, okay with that? I, I am prepared. And I also want to talk about this documentary, but we'll, let's do cinemodity status because I think that fits with what we've been discussing. Here's my thing, Zach. I'm glad you've told me that you read this script, that you have researched this further than I have. Because, honestly, I've only seen this documentary. That's my base of knowledge for uh, analyzing the Richard Stanley Island of Dr. Moreau as a cinemonity or not. And here's my thing. I want to know, is this movie even possible? We are talking in November, we are talking about movies that don't exist. There's some reason that they don't exist. But, honestly, 
could this movie ever have existed? It was still going to have Val Kilmer, right? It was still going to have Marlon Brando. Is Richard Stanley saying that he could have controlled Marlon Brando and he, Marlon Brando wouldn't have tanked this project in the ways that he did? It seems to me that this is a film that cannot exist. What do you think with all the extra research that you've done? I think, as you said already, you seem that it you seem to think that it would have been able to be pulled off. I think if you were able to get the appropriate okay oh i okay, I think if you could get the actors to behave themselves well, well, yeah, see that's where I'm coming from. That's the million dollar question. Richard Stanley, apparently, according to this documentary, could not get Val Kilmer to behave. And who knows for how long he could have got Marlon Brando to behave. I feel like that's too big of an if. I, th- I think Richard Stanley got along with Marlon Brando. I think Val Kilmer was so full of himself. that Because they even talked about when John Frankenheimer took over, that even Frankenheimer had a hard time controlling Val Kilmer. Yes, but I, I feel like that just adds to my point that, you know... I feel like the movie that we're discussing, the Richard Stanley version, is an idealized version that cannot exist with Val Kilmer because of how difficult he was. It cannot exist with Marlon Brando because of how difficult he was. You know what I'm saying? Well, the thing, I think it could, but you would need the studio to get involved. Because what would it, because the problem is that nobody was backing Richard Stanley up because. Let's say he sat there and Val Kilmer was refusing to come out of his trailer after like the third time of doing that. Yeah. The producers were because also the whole point of produ- producers don't just sit there and make sit there uh, calculate logistics. They would sit there, call up the head of the company or the head of development, mm-hmm. and say, "Val Kilmer's not coming out of his, out of his thing. We're, we're doing everything we can. He's being obstinate for the sake of doing this. Someone would have to threaten Val Kilmer." And I think the problem is that, A, you did not have, like we already said, an apparatus set up to support Richard Stanley with that. Because clearly nobody tried. Once well, They talk about it in this, that there'd be days where Kilmer and Brando would f- refuse to come out of their trailer until the yeah. next one did. Yeah. And I think, I think, too, it takes a little bit of creative, um, what would be the right word? I guess creative directing in a sense that you have to learn how to manipulate the actors Oh, yeah, social social engineering, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's something that you'd have to do. I don't think Stanley would have known how to do that. I don't think he's a type – he's not a cynical person. Mm-hmm. I think maybe that's – but that's why you have producers. Like a producer that was behind him okay. would have said, okay, I'm going to figure this out. And that's why – again, it's not Richard Stanley's job to do everything. But he should have a producer that would back him up, not just say, well, time to get a new director – yeah, that's a that's a really great point. I think it goes along with what you were saying earlier about the like the assistant or the assistant director that that's what's absent in this documentary. We hear from Richard Stanley, from some of the actors, from you know some of the stage hands, whatever you want to call them, behind the scenes people, but we never really see anyone who was there to support Richard Stanley. You're right. I think that's kind of the issue with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that... that's a fair point. It's a fair point. You need, and I think that's what Val Kilmer's thing was too. It was his ego, and he's trying to sit there and, and break. Him. I guess because it's funny. I'm, I'm reading my book right now because there's a quote that Val that Marlon Brando makes about Val Kilmer. Oh, and I can't find it. It's a really good one though. 
Is it um, about the reefs? No, it's not about the reefs, unfortunately. Oh my god, that line in this documentary made me laugh out loud, Zach. <laughs> there was one scene where Marlon and, and Kilmer were going to be together. Val sits down, tries to talk to him. He says, so, have you been out on the reef? And Brando just looks at him and says, the reef? I own a reef. I got reefs coming out of my ass. And that was it. That was their whole conversation. That is everything that I think Tangerine Reef embodies as a visual album. What do you think, Zach? <laughs> I can definitely get behind that. I got reefs coming out of my ass. <laughs> All right. Until I find that quote, I'm going to have to find another. This is one of the ones that's in my, in my book. Stanley, for his part, had the feeling that Kilmer was deliberately testing his director. Quote, mm -hmm. I think maybe Val does it the whole time that he might always automatically throw his weight around the first few days, end quote. Kilmer had indeed won a reputation for being difficult, clashing with Tombstone director George Cosmatos. Mm, Cosmos, Panos, Cosmatopoulos, Anstropolis? Panos, Cosmonaut, <laughs> and being described by Batman Forever director Joel Schumacher as, quote, childish and impossible. <laughs> Says Stanley, quote, I've heard very few reports from Heat or The Doors, but I'm not sure anyone would have fired Michael Mann or Oliver Stone after three days. So I can't help feeling it's more the company's fault than Val's, end quote. New Line head Mike DeLuca appeared to agree, quote, I didn't give Val a strong director, end quote, he admitted. And that was my fault. Mm. And so, again, I think that's what, I think even though obviously uh, Richard Stanley's not a, a Oliver Stone, I think there is the idea of there was nobody supporting him. There, there was nothing yeah. to back him up. Brando was like a perpetual Bronco. You just had to kind of break him in yeah, and hit, and hit play ball. And I think once he saw what Kel Kilmer was doing, he was going to sit there and have fun with this, regardless of the, of the film that was trying to be made in the process. Yeah, they were, they were feeding off of each other in a negative way, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because it's weird, because they I think they mention it in the documentary, in the behind-the-scenes features, maybe, that they that both Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando apologized to Richard Stanley for getting him fired, or, or their actions oh. leading. Because they say that, I think it's in the bonus, it has to be in the bonus features, that Richard Stanley says that Marlon Brando offered to pay Richard Stanley his full directing price tag that he was going to get from New Line. Oh, wow. Like, okay. like he offered to pay him that, and he says, he, decli he says obviously, I declined. And then I think it was at the rap party, which somehow Richard Stanley was there. But Val <laughs> Kilmer went up to him and apologized for him for 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 his actions and for and for what eventually happened. Oh wow! Okay, interesting, interesting. All right, so I'm gonna have to sit there. Just I know I can't find the exact quote with Val with Marlon Brando about Val Kilmer. But it's something along the lines of I got well, reefs coming up my ass. <laughs> well, it's, maybe it's not as good as that though. Meanwhile, friction between Brando and Kilmer elicited the former's quip, quote, your problem is you confuse the size of your paycheck with the size of your talent, end quote. <laughs> right on. Yeah, so that's, like I said, that's, that, that was the quote. Figures, I finally find it. But that's, like I, said, I think that's what it was, though. So I do think you could get this movie made with the talent. Because, like, I know they talk about, like, originally it was Bruce Willis. Yep, as, and James as, Woods. And James Woods, and I can see James Woods doing it, but I don't buy James Wood. Is James Woods like a hippie? He's he's too straight laced for that. 
I think Zach is too stereotypical of hippies. <laughs> okay, Rob, Rob, obviously, I'm insulting part of Rob's like counterculture in Broadway. But I don't like, you know, James Woods is a good actor. I don't take him because, like, as I was reading this, I could imagine Val Kilmer kind of like a like like with his like hair like not uh, pulled back. But kind of like in a bandana, yeah. Or like like like, a, like in like the glasses, the shirt off. Because no, like I seeing having seen the actual film that got made, I could see the actors involved doing all this. Like mm-hmm. I I could buy into it. I could imagine everybody acting with. Like I don't think this this is would have been like a Jodorowsky's Dune, the film, not the documentary. Where like if this film got made, it would have just blown the hinges off the doors. And this yeah. is some kind of this like opus that's lost the time. Mm-hmm. I I don't think it's that level of like oh this is mind blowing except for the end where again Val Kilmer would give the animal people a bunch of drugs like <laughs> like I think that's hysterical like today I I think in all honesty I'm trying to think if you were to get obviously David Thewlis is too old and Val Kilmer I think Val Kilmer could still work if he lost some weight <laughs> <laughs> no, I like that let's like put that, that on a mug. <laughs> <laughs> Val Kilmer could work if he lost some weight. <laughs> no, he has to stay as plump as he is from a Gruber too. <laughs> oh dear, but I, I think I don't know who you would cast as as the uh, as Prendick, the main character. I I don't know because I think about Marlon Brando. Because I know they mentioned that like, oh, we don't know why they attached Marlon Brando to this film because of how I think they just had New Line had a recent production with Marlon Brando. Yeah, and he no, was very difficult. Like- Bob Shea says something like, why are we using Marlon Brando again? But one of the director or the producer, someone involved was like, hey, we used him for this. We have a contact. Well, it was Mike DeLuca again. Who, oh, again, okay. The, yeah, who's, yeah. Who's the giant question? I think everybody outside of bringing Marlon Brando back to life. I think, and I, I, like I said, it'd be hysterical watching Marlon Brando talk about this. Um, I, I would imagine like there's a great Chappelle show skit where it's Rick James in the place of like, Mar- I guess it's Marlon Brando in the place of Rick James, just <laughs> recollecting this entire experience. Like, I, I feel you, there's a great like sketch comedy bit just waiting to be made from this. Oh yeah, but I think Mike DeLuke is the key to all this because he's the one who could have made a phone call to Kelmer's agent saying like, "We're paying your cl- we're paying your client how many millions of dollars?" Like, in, like that's what you gotta do. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's kind of like all these guys know how they sit there, curse and yell at each other to get them get everybody motivated. Like that needed to happen. Yeah, yeah, they know and, where to put the pressure. Absolutely, exactly. And I think that's what we're kind of missing here. But no, like going back okay. to your original question, I think you could have gotten this film made. You just need everybody. You Richard Stanley needed support. Yeah, and I, and I think the issue with him maybe because like again, you look at hardware, and I just cannot imagine a guy who made that film would just fall apart making this. Yeah, that's a good point. And and you know, that's why I'm asking you this because you've you have this knowledge that you know, I haven't I haven't seen that yet. I haven't seen anything he's ever done. Um and just the way this documentary presents it is that it would be very very fragile, you know, a very unstable film. If it didn't fall apart where it did, who's to say it wouldn't wouldn't have fallen apart in a week or so. But it's good to hear, you know, what you're putting forward. Absolutely. Well, I guess it may be like that quote I read about getting him a stronger director. Like, yes, maybe, yeah. if, a Roman, maybe if a Roman Polanski was directing this, Kilmer would have behaved himself better. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the fact that Kilmer said, I mean, also, these guys not the same, too. I know Rob's not going to like this. I'm kind of I'm crapping on his culture again. But these guys also <laughs> do drugs. 
and stuff. They get so full of themselves. And it's just, you know what? Let's just see how far I can take it. It's, it's you're not dealing with rational human beings. That's what drugs do, everybody. They make you make your ego super inflated. <laughs> they make you they make you ruin uh, adaptation of Island of Doctor Moreau. <laughs> That's what drugs do for this. This is your brain on drugs. You're you're in the middle of the Australian wilderness, ruining a man's dream of making an Island of Doctor Moreau adaptation. In in the Cairns. Yep. <laughs> Uh, but no, I think this could, I, I really think, I, it's one thing where you hear about, like, difficult actors, and they, they, you don't even hear about difficult actors anymore, that's not really a thing. Unless yeah, you, you know, I, I feel like I only ever hear about them in, in hindsight, it seems, like, uh, or in, in the past tense, almost, you're right, you don't hear about them in the modern day and age. Well, like, you still have, you still have people like De Niro, I, I guess my my comparison would be I hear about difficult musicians when like musicians play certain venues they have crazy demands. I'm sure actors, you know, have a similar repertoire. Yeah, but but all that gets hammered out in advance. Like if you're not able to, oh, like, you also yeah. sign a contract, and if you don't do what you're supposed to do, it's like okay, we're going to sue you into oblivion. Absolutely, I, I I have sued multiple places. I played shows and demanded my eighty chicken nuggets before the show and they only gave me 70 and i sued the shit out of them it was great you know what i won zach you know oh, what i won boy. zach you know what i won 10 chicken nuggets <laughs> <laughs> i like that you were going to answer that same exact thing zach oh my god you passed the test <laughs> thank you sir i try <laughs> but i think that's kind of the learning lesson of all this was that i think everybody knew i think also new line being a independent film company they were afraid to disenfranchise someone like Val Kilmer. And I think it's even brought up later in the film. They say they can always get another director. That was never their issue. It was Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando were the money. Or at yeah. least the act was going to bring in the money. So they were the most important assets of the film. Not, not The director's vision was not the thing that had to be shielded. It was the actor's. Yeah. Uh, you, you are so right. I don't think it's mentioned in this documentary, but it's mentioned in the Fantastic Four documentary, which we'll talk about later, I believe, where it was like, you know, we don't have an actor to put on our poster to make money. We just had the name Fantastic Four. Island of Dr. Moreau was the exact opposite. They needed the actors' names to put on that poster to get people to go see it. Yeah, I, th I think that was the old... They say it again in the documentary. The detriment of the film was that if this film was made for like $8 million with like Marlon Brando and like, I guess Bruce Willis was a big star, but I guess it's kind of like this film was made for like under $10 million because this movie made money. It made oh, like yeah. $70 million worldwide, which is a decent amount of money back then. Yeah. People like this. People like still do the Island of Dr. Moreau, the story. I still think to literature fans, that's a notable name. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess, again, I definitely think if you could, like, again, I don't, it's funny. I think this could have been a competently well-made film, mm -hmm. but I don't think this would have been a cinemodity. Other than, other than, okay, I, the only weird thing's like, he has, he has sex with the Catwoman, David Thewlis, I guess the main character. Okay, I'm intrigued. But she's not really a Catwoman, because, <laughs> like, obviously Moreau's giving her the serum to keep her more human than, than... Mm -hmm. animal yeah and then at one point like i guess moreau is dead or he's incapacitated or whatever he's distracted so she's not getting her like injections so like at one point our main character is like feeling up the Catwoman, 
and she's like slowly like morphing into cat. So like he'll be like, they say like in the script it's like oh, um, Prendick is caressing her breast, and then slowly she'll form like four more breasts. <laughs> and yet he's and yet he's still turned on by this. I, I was just about to say we cinemodities as a podcast have just filled a very very small niche fetish niche in what you're describing, Zach. <laughs> People are going to be listening to our, our podcast for the the wrong reasons, oh, according wrong to you, reasons. I would say. <laughs> Elements of it were cinematis worthy. But Again, as a whole, been, it's but, not. But, but to be fair, we're looking at this just solely as written words. It's like, yeah. I know Richard Stanley has a lot of concept art that he's floating around during this. Mm-hmm. I know there's like, there's like one scene like where they show Moreau like birthing the baby or the baby. Oh, the Jesus imagery and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. There's not. There's only one scene in this that actually like. I know once Moreau is dead, the animals are carrying him like to like a, a funeral pyre. Okay. And they say that he's very he's laid out very crucifix esque mm-hmm. as they carry him back. But no, there's really nothing in this where like the the dog people or the hyena people are are like what's the word? Like I, I think he talks about like one of the dog people's like licking the utensils in the background. Oh that, yeah, yeah. There's there's definitely a lot, and I, and I think he says it in the book, or maybe in the uh, behind the scenes stuff that he did compromise a lot of the. He he compromised in in the pre production, like he didn't exactly have like I think in the script he toned things down. I, mm-hmm. I know him and another. There's two screenwriters, including him, and there was a polish by a third writer. Sure. So, and I think he, because even there's an article I read, because there's talk every once in a while that he'll start developing another, like, he's going he's gonna, to uh, update his script. Mm-hmm. And he's going to make another Island of Dr. Moreau with someone. And in, in that, I think in one of those articles, he says he didn't like the design of the makeup and, like, mask and just creative design of the Beast people. Okay. That was good. If he stayed on in the film, he says he didn't like those. Oh, okay. I I don't know if that's just him being uh, vindictive. Not vindictive, but a little bit of oh my lord. Uh, uh, I want to say salty, but that's that's clearly <laughs> that's the kids lingo these days. V- vindictive. <laughs> no, but, like begrudging, like, like retroactively being begrud- begrudgingly. Like I don't like that now because now that it got taken away from me. Um, but at the same time, I would imagine that he was forced to compromise with them at numerous points. Yeah, yeah, vindictive. Yeah. <laughs> I, vindictive. No, I'm with you. No, I'm, I'm with you, Zach. Completely. Vindictive is like re- I, I see vindictive as like retribution. It seems like very begrudgingly, like he changed his mind after the fact, and he's like, "I now I don't like it." There's elements to this, but in, until like I think that's another thing too that as we've learned from Jodorowsky, like considering that he, like Jodorowsky storybooked his like entire. Yeah. He has a, like a, a, a solid state representation of what he wanted this movie to be. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's something like, like it's funny that in all this, we do not see any storyboards. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a major key. To I, I also think too, there also is a thing is like a director's culture where uh, they expect a level of just preparedness and maybe Richard Stanley just wasn't. I know a lot of directors are very improv- uh, improvisational, where they're they like they like to do things at the moment. And because I know a couple, of t- I don't know if it's in there. I, I, I've lost track now. Whether this is in the documentary or superfluous <laughs> information. 
But they say that they had think about it, he he was shooting for four days, mm-hmm. and they say a lot of that footage was awful. Yeah. And in the projection booth interview, they because when the host asked the director, saying, "Did you were you able to uncover any of the Richard Stanley footage?" and he goes, "Not." He goes, "No, but but it's not because we tried." He goes, <laughs> "Because technically, finding that if they even have it would be very difficult because you have you'd have to sift through everything." Okay. He goes, "Because technically, this is all now owned by Time Warner." Okay. So he'd have to go to Time Warner with a request saying, I want to see the dailies for the island of Dr. Moreau. And then he'd have to hope for them to even assign someone to go to locate all of it. Yeah. If it even exists. And then once they've located it all, then he'd have to go sift through it all and find stuff that Richard Stanley shot. Okay. Okay. I see where you're coming from. In the bonus features, they have an interview with Barbara Steele as she recounts. She recounts a scene she had like, in the film, which was directed by Richard Stanley. Apparently, she played Doctor Moreau's wife. Okay. At one point, Doctor Moreau has like a flashback where <laughs> there's like a monkey smoking a cigarette, and Barbara Steele like. It's a really weird interview because she's like, in this interview, they they brought this like chimpanzee in, or maybe no orangutan. Excuse me. They bring this orangutan in, and it's an interview, and they have a still of it. There's a black and white still. Oh, I think this is in the documentary. This sounds familiar now. The image is there. I don't know if the actual um, interview is. Okay. But she talks about it. It's the stills of Richard Stanley, the orangutan, and her. And she's like, because they brought this poor like orangutan in, and it was like dressed up in a suit, and they made it get disrobed. And that was so humiliating to the orangutan. And then (laughs) it started smoking a cigarette. And I had to take the cigarette out of its mouth. And in that moment, I realized I'm going to inhale thousands of part- like particles that are probably going to give me diseases. And that's like, it's going like four minutes long, but it's so surreal. Okay. And they mention it in the um, projection booth podcast. Like, oh, did you find that deleted scene? And like I already said, the, uh, the director is like, well, we didn't even go looking for it. So yeah. there, there, there's a, a slim possibility that maybe some of the four days of shooting of Richard Stanley did is is out there okay okay still you know i came into this conversation thinking that this is possibly a film that couldn't exist you've kind of given me some more information to convince me that it really could have but i i think i'm on the fence well i think you've already stated you don't think it would be a cinemodity i'm kind of on the fence of whether or not i think it would be because you know to be fair i have i haven't seen hardware i don't i don't know what richard stanley's work is like not that that should you know, wildly influenced if I think this is a cinemodity, but I'm I'm kind of teetering. You know? Oh, definitely. It's not a it's not a slam dunk. He seems like a weird enough individual that it's possible for it to be a cinemodity. But at the same time, like you said, with the script and how kind of relatively tame it is, you know, maybe it, it would have just flown under the radar. I don't. I think if it was made today, mm-hmm. it, would, it would have flown under the radar. But I think if it came out um, then, I think – I don't think this would have made a ton of money. I think it probably would have been a little bit – like I think looking back, we might be like, oh, wow, how is how, – how did this escape us? But I think with a okay. – I think it would have been like something – I think in my stupid book, books, the uh, movie that was never made, they <laughs> mentioned that like, oh, 
it has like a Planet of the Apes Tim Burton vibe where you have like a very uh, handsome man falling in love with like an animal beast. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I think the closest thing we could have gotten to this and figured, oddly enough, it's it's a Tim Burton movie. I think it would have been something like Planet of the Apes. You have had a lot of people in like monkey mask and just like animal costumes. And it's worth noting that like Ron Perlman was in this before like Ron Perlman was like a household name. I wanted to ask you that. There's a shot at so I asked him. She's like one or two shots you can see him. Okay, so so uh, fifty nine minutes and nineteen seconds into this movie, <laughs> I wrote this down. Is that Ron Perlman? It looks like him. So that is him. Yeah, that's him. He was in this. Hot damn. Okay, like it caught my attention as I was watching this. You know, like a normal movie, not frame by frame. And then I had to pause and go back and figure out when this this the timestamp was because i was like that really looks like ron perlman good glad to know i'm not going crazy at least from the ron perlman metric yeah ron perlman um was in the final film as the sayer of the law oh okay i guess i just don't remember that yeah he's on the documentary because i know in the projection booth episode they ask mm-hmm. the director whose name we probably should say david gregory they ask him like like obviously like they they tried to get val kilmer his response was, I'm too busy. Yeah. They tried getting Ron Perlman too busy. Mike DeLuca said too busy. Uh, the only person they said they actually got some pushback was David Thewlis, who mm. said like they said like there was like like a very stern tone to like the rejection they got where yeah, I get, <laughs> obviously it's not him, it's his it's his his representations like yeah. we call, our client will not uh, sink to those sort of levels of depravity discussing rumors and gossip of oh, yesteryear. Wow. And like, yeah, like that, that was one of the things like, okay. Cause I know when David Thewlis, this is brought up to him. He's like, if I mentioned anything from this movie, I wouldn't have a job anymore. Or like, I wouldn't be able to work <laughs> in this town ever again. If I talked about what happened on that set. Okay. And in the bonus features during one of the many Richard Stanley interviews. And I think it's funny. I, uh, like Rob said, Richard Stanley just kind of transitions from topic to topic. Yeah. If you watch like his the the bonus features because it it's just like segments of stuff he was saying that got cut out. There's really no. It's funny the transitions between different like antidotes he says are done with dissolves. So if you didn't know any better, if you're not really paying attention, you'd think it's just basically like a 45 minute long just like conversation that just pin pinballs all over the place. Okay. But in one of those moments, he talks about how apparently on the set. David Thewlis had like uh, I think he broke his leg. Oh wow! And whatever happened was is obviously uh, your lead actor, your second main actor yeah. breaks their leg. Yeah. That they had they basically told him like you have to like just work around it. And apparently whatever he 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 worked too hard with the broken leg. That apparently according to Richard Stanley, who knows if it's true, but he says from what he's heard, uh, David Thewlis has like walking problems now because of it. Oh man. Because he he didn't have enough recu- recuperation time after okay. breaking his leg Jeez. that didn't set properly. Jeez. Oddly enough, at a hundred minute documentary, mm-hmm. I think you probably could even do more with this. I, I think oh, there yeah. is a lot more information out there that we don't even know about with with this film. Yeah, I think that you you know you've proven that to me just from what all the other sources you've gathered. You know, and what else could be out there it would make it even more intriguing. I'm sure. Plus, Tamora Morrison, Django Fett is in this film. <laughs> I didn't pick up on that one. Who does he play? Azello, Azazelo. Azazel. A dog-like hybrid in Moreau's son, quote-unquote, 
okay. designed to find the hybrids. Mm. Over that. Okay. Means. So Django Fed. Okay. <laughs> so well, okay, I have to ask Rob. So now that we got into some Richard Stanton, we've kind of delved into a little bit of everything here. Yeah, what is, I, what, I think. I, yeah, go go for it, Zach. What do you think about the idea that Richard Stanley is fired off this film? He goes into like the jungles of Australia, like goes like uh, native, and then like weeks, months later, is is not that he's brought back to the set, but he finds other people that have been fired off the production, mm-hmm. and they start talking to people that are like Aboriginal people in Australia that are still working on the set. Yeah, and they sneak him back on as an extra. Yes, this made the story for me. This was so awesome because as I was watching this documentary very early on, maybe first 15, 30 minutes, I was like, wow, this is really good. I'm intrigued. They've, they've, you know, drawn me into the tale that they're weaving with this character, Richard Stanley. And then Richard Stanley disappears from the movie, literally disappears from the movie as he did, uh, you know, from Australia almost, because I think there's a whole scene where the guy was like, yeah, I drove him to the airport and I saw him go into the airport. And then the next day I got a call and they said, Richard Stanley never got on the plane. <laughs> and what, like Zach described, what he does is goes and lives in the jungles of Australia. I think they say something like he finds an abandoned farm to live on or something near the the shooting of the revived Island of Dr. Moreau project. But the movie does it masterfully, the documentary, I should say. They just drop Richard Stanley from the conversation for a good bit of it. And then, out of nowhere, he kind of pops back up when, like Zach said, he finds, or other people find him, just existing in the in the jungle. And he sneaks back onto the set and becomes one of the extras as a beast person. This is great. This is everything I want from the third act of a story, Zach. That kind of twist. And I think Richard Stanley, in the interview, when they bring him back for the end of the movie, he says it best. He had completed the cycle from being the creator character of the director of this movie to just being an extra as a beast person. And I thought that was a really kind of nice uh, wrap to that story arc. That's why I love this documentary so much, that it told a story. Oh, definitely. I, the only thing I have to say about that, because he even shows like the mask he was wearing is like the dog person. Yeah, they, they, they do some like what, you know, the they shade everything else out except for one circle and they put an arrow towards them when you can see him in certain stills and stuff like that. Well, I think there's one shot in the entire like finished film you can see him in. And it's like right. I think it's. Oh God! Like he's behind Val Kilmer, or he's like in the the background of a shot with Vil, Val Kilmer. Okay, and I think that's only like the one shot he's in. Mm-hmm. But I think only thing I think is interesting though, because they interview. I think it was John Frankenheimer's producer, and they're asking him, and he's like, "Oh, I could have sworn I saw one guy on the set that just never took his mask off. Yeah, yeah, and never took a sip of water. And like, okay, this production was even the tenth as hectic as we're led to believe." Why would a producer who's running around mm. notice one person not putting their mask off and on? That's like, point. like, there's so much going on. Again, like Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando were just doing not. Never mind. On a normal movie set, it would be hard to focus in on one extra. Why this? This seems like a, oh, like well, because the stories have been out there forever. That Richard, like, I think, even back like in the late '90s, like the story was out there that Richard Stanley snuck back onto the set. Okay. 
So it's like it's very easy to say in retrospect. Oh, I knew he was there all along. Yeah, of course. But that's the only thing about it, though, because like, that, that, other than people like a, a backroom secret that eventually just gets everybody knows it eventually that the guy who gets fired off his film eventually sneaks back on mm-hmm. and hides in the background as an anonymous extra. And then that point of the story, it's kind of like you know, it's it's just you know a difference of how they can you know spin it with the people involved. Which is what they need to do for a documentary where they're interviewing people. Um, but I, I just love the fact that it occurred. That Richard Stanley was there to corroborate it, at least. You know, he was like, I, you know, like the story arc, like I said. I don't know how he never got in trouble for that, though. I, I consider yeah, that's, that. Yeah, that's a good, yeah, who knows. Uh, I guess they stopped caring after a while. Let's I guess. sue him. Can we sue him? Civil suit. Civil suit. <laughs> no, he'll put a curse on us. Oh, you're, you're afraid of these curses, Zach. I'm afraid of Richard Stanley. Okay, so you're you're good with other people's curses? <laughs> no, but Richard Stanley, I feel, has the power. He knows what he's doing. Okay, I'll take on a Richard Stanley curse if you take on a curse for me. How about that? Oh, my God. I don't know what curse it's going to be yet, but but you're agreeing to that deal? Okay, no, nope. No, no, no. Yes, no. Zach said yes, everybody. It's on record. We're, we're good to go. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we're trading God. curses. <laughs> Isn't that like a TV show on TLC, Trading Curses? Oh, yeah, give it a few years. That'll come up. I woke up, and my room is shaking, even though I'm in California, and the rock is clearly cursed. <laughs> and I spilled some orange juice on the rug. And even <sighs> worse, the rug was just cleaned. It wouldn't have been that bad, but I failed a test that day, too. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even study for it. Yeah, who would have thought? <laughs> uh, so my okay, skin so got a rash. <laughs> from a dirty rock in the middle of a Californian desert. Who would have thought? <laughs> So where do we go from here? Like, do we talk about Nelson De La Rosa and the fact that like the world's like, I, like Marlon Brando had like this weird obsession with the, the world's smallest man? I mean, that's part of the reason I think I love this documentary so much that we got this Richard Stanley Island of Dr. Moreau story as the centerpiece. But there's so many branches from that story that are wildly interesting. And, and that's just one of them, Zach. I mentioned the reef quote before. I thought that was great. The Nelson De La Rosa and, and his whole, like, after Marlon Brando adopted adopted him, you know, I guess, in this acting role, that he punched the German guy in the nuts, like that part of the story. The ger- Just the German guy who is, they interviewed for, like, the whole movie, him doing all his voices and impressions. That was awesome. And uh, I don't know. I don't know, Zach. This was an overall great movie. There's so much to it uh, that fits on so many different levels. It's awesome. I'm surprised. Yes, the Marco Hofstadter stuff, where like, he's doing all the like the, the Marlon Brando, where it's like, so Mar- Marlon Brando comes over to me and he's like, <laughs> he co- "Oh, so you're the German actor? Are you German? Oh, are you German? <laughs> I can't do a Marlon Brando. I don't think I can't do a Marlon Brando either. This guy does it really well, though, in the film." Brando looked at me, he's like, "Oh, okay, so, so you are the German actor, right?" Uh, yes, I'm the German actor. I do talk some German. No idea. Not German, right? So I said, uh, Mr. Brando, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't understand that. Was you a German, right? Yes, I'm German. Ah, Katze is cat. Dach is roof. So I'm like, ah, you, 
You're talking about the, the cat on the hot tin roof, right? No. Ah, okay, I got it. I had no idea what he was talking about. And then, and then Zinnemann said, um, I think what he's talking about is, you know, uh, it's better to kill two birds with a stone, whatever. He, did, he made something up, you know, and Brenner's exactly. He talks better German than you. <laughs> Mr. Brando, we need you on the set. I gotta go now. Last time I talked to him, never talked to him again, right? And then the next thing I, I, I heard, actually, is that, that he actually did something very similar to Nelson De La Rosa. Oh, you're the Spanish actor. Si, senor. Mm, so you, I do speak some Spanish. Si, senor. I love this guy. I want this guy in every scene, every scene with me, every scene. Zinnemann. Sorry, Mr. Brenner, that, that, no, we can't do that because he's not an actor. I teach him how to act. Okay, but, you know, he doesn't speak English. I just dub him. Yeah, but we, uh, you know, I mean, uh, Marco Hofschneider is, is in every scene with you. Well, I guess we just have to change the script. And that was it. Uh, he took my part away. I mean, Brenner gave him the part, but, man, you know, I was... I thought I had a problem with Kilmer. No, I had a problem with the smallest man in the world. And I lost to him. That's something. I'm gonna say right now, Zach, you and I have to brush up on our Brando impressions because when we get to Jan Stober and the God Thumb, we're gonna oh. have to be doing we're gonna be have to do Brando impressions. You know it. Oh my lord. So si we, have, we have a few months. We have a few months to prepare. <laughs> si senor. Si senor. Oh dear lord! So you have that um, the ice bucket on the his ice head. bucket. He's he like they say it in the movie. It's so crazy. He was like Marlon Brando just got the idea in his head that he was hot all the time, and it's like one. If Marlon Brando, as an actor, had that thought, he was like, "Oh, that'd be good for this character if I was hot all the time." That's weird because men don't go through menopause, right, Zach? Last I checked, they don't have hot flashes. Two, if Marlon Brando actually was hot all the time, same response. Men don't have hot flashes, right, Zach? Am I am I wrong in saying this? Well, I think the thing they go for is that it's like he just wanted to see how far he could take it. It's like, see, like, was there a point where they eventually tell him no? So you're saying that Marlon Brando, I should respect Marlon Brando for his absurd genius in thinking of this idea to push the film crew and everybody else involved to their extent. Yes. Well, huh? I don't know if you should, Well, in Rob Bizarro world, maybe this is... Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Of course, of course, in Rob Bizarro world, because I would... You know, wouldn't I love to go... I start teaching a class for a semester, and I say, every day somebody has to bring me ice, because I'm too hot. <laughs> <laughs> like, that would be right up my alley. <laughs> Well, because there's also the whole thing with the peacock feathers, where he makes someone go get the peacock feathers arbitrarily, and then there's the whole, then there's the other one where he has to wear the white face, yeah, with the dark sunglasses and like the the thin cloth, the veil. I guess my my issue comes down to: Do we have any proof? Do we have any definitive evidence that this was Marlon Brando being? a difficult asshole and not him truly being artistic. Is there anyone that can say definitively which one it was? Frankenheimer actually called me at one point. And again, it was one of those, I, you, you don't know me, but I have to talk to the head of the company. So what is it? He said, this is complete insanity here. And I have to tell you, I, I 
dealt with some very, very difficult actors in my life, but I have never, ever dealt with somebody like Marlon Brando. He said, we're driving, and he stops the car and says, let's fuck Bob Shea. And I said, this is John's saying to me, and I said, well, why? He seems like a pretty nice guy. Why should we do that? So, well, he doesn't know what he's doing. And I think what we should do is just close the down the production. And uh, you and I are going to rewrite the script. And we'll spend six or eight weeks rewriting it because I have some ideas about how Dr. Moreau should be wearing a hat all the time. And at the end of the movie, takes off his hat and he's actually a dolphin. So then I knew we were in serious, serious bad shape. I don't know. I think it's just the fact that Mar- Mar- Marlon Brando at this point had sort of like a reputation for being difficult. I see, but that I, I think that's my issue, is the difficult, truthful, or just reputation from people working with them, you know? Because there's a difference when it comes from the actor, be it Marlon Brando or Val Kilmer, when they're being difficult, very difficult, is that coming from a sense of, hey, I'm being an asshole, or is it coming from a sense of this is what's best for my artistic product? And I think that's a big difference there. And I don't know if we have, you know, a definitive answer, right? For either act. Val was next to the camera here. And he was sitting in a chair and then he sort of started to squat down and, and he was off camera and he was doing his lines. And the, the, the focus puller was right next to him. And this guy had, I mean, we were in the jungle for whatever, eight weeks and his hair, his his sideburns had grown, you know, he hadn't been trimming. So they were, you know, scraggly and the guy's sitting there and 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 Val was smoking a cigarette. And he goes and he, he starts to burn the ends of this guy's hair during the take. It became a, a kind of one of the triggers that started the crew to to really not put up with um, any shit, so to speak. At the end of the day, I think it's for Marlon Brando. I don't know about Val. I think Val Kilmer it was ego. Okay. I don't think Val. Okay. I don't think Val Kilmer had demands like that, like creative demands. It was. I think with him, it was. It was a power mm. grab. Sure, it was more of the behind the scenes. He wanted to make sure everybody knew he was in control. Yes, I think with Marlon Brando, it was. I'm Marlon Brando. No one's going to stop me. <laughs> and then it was. I think it amused him. I think it was the whole thing of just, I think even if like, like Rob already stated, whether it was artistic inspiration or just trying to be a jerk and seeing yeah. how he can get away with it. I think both of them was just, uh, it was amusing to him. It was, okay. I'm amused by my character having a giant ice bucket on my head and let's see how far I can get away with that. Okay. I guess it, I don't it's know. Both. And, and, it's and both. Sure. So it's some, it's some weird blend of both. <laughs> I guess at that point in Marlon Brando's career, I would not be surprised if it was a weird blend of both, you know, because he had to be, a, I don't know a lot about, you know, I know the, I know the key points, but I don't know the, all the details of Marlon Brando's career, but I would imagine, you know, he didn't get to this status by not being a creative entity. So I'm sure that they bled together at some point. Well, again, Marlon Brando was difficult by the time of The Godfather, which was like okay. 1971. Okay. So oh, wow. we're, we're, t- we're talking 25 years later. It's like he was difficult then. Like, like when Cop- Coppola hired him, he was difficult then. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I guess that's like I said. I don't really know the 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 major or the the detailed history of Marlon Brando. We'll do that. We'll do a Brando series, right? Oh dear lord, <gasps> Stella. <laughs> Stella. <laughs> 
<laughs> What's the other one? Um, this is not as fun to say, but what was it? The uh, on the waterfront. I could have been someone. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. I not a, a bum. Could have been a contender. Oh man, Marlon Brando actually cared. Ugh. <laughs> oh, Marlon Brando actually cared. Could have been a contender. Yeah, that that's a good one. That's a good one. Is there anything else that we want to highlight? There's a lot. This this is a very dense. Brand, Brando Stover. Brand Stover. Bra- no, Brando Stover. I want the extra syllable in there. Oh, okay. Brando Stover, because he would want the extra syllable in there. <laughs> uh, so I know it's funny. Speaking of Brando, I know in the actual finished film. There's uh, Val Kilmer does a Marlon Brando impersonation in the film. Oh, okay. And from what I've read, that was not in the script. That was not agreed upon. That was in that specific take. Val Kilmer mocking Marlon Brando, <laughs> and they kept it in the final film. First cast out the beam that is in thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote of thy brother's eye. Neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet. And then, give not that which is holy unto the dog. What does she need? Animal or man? What am I looking for? Neither cast the Listen. Interesting. I, I I have to look that up. I I really have to watch this movie again after seeing this documentary. I think it's worth watching this movie again, knowing some more of the history about it. I know. I know. I I, I watched it after seeing the documentary a handful of times, and I don't think it it, it makes you appreciate because so much of it is different. Okay. Like okay. like you like you some of the elements you're like oh okay, but like. That's the interesting thing about this. Like, there's no seams poking through. Mm. Like, it's more just like a bland, borderline bad movie. Gotcha. The seams aren't there. Like, everybody's like, it, it's kind of like they say. It's nothing short of amazing that a actual product was able to be released from this. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's kind of like, like getting to John Frankenheimer. And there is an interview. There's a like an archive interview with him when the film was like being released in the 90s mm-hmm. he was doing i guess like a press press junket or a press tour or whatever it was okay and then he has one of the most embarrassing looking suits ever like he has like a a grandpa suit on like <laughs> the, the jacket the pants and the tie just don't match all three of them like they all conflict <laughs> each other sure. he has like a gray pants like a, a tweed jacket and like like a green tie it's so like if you'd swear he got dressed in, the, in a, a room with the light bulb went off. <laughs> and, and like they're asked, cause like the interviewer is like, Oh, we heard you had some problems on the set. Like I heard like Val Kilmer's like ego got like the best of them a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And it, as they say in this documentary, John Frankenheimer's quote is saying, even if I directed the life and times of Val Kilmer, I still wouldn't cast this SOB in the movie. Yeah, that was a great line. <laughs> yeah, in the, yeah, in this interview from the 90s, John Frankenheimer's like, oh, I got I got along with Val spent, uh, spectacularly. Oh, God. Everybody's lying to us. That's Everybody. what you're saying, right? <laughs> well, I see, again, in the bonus features, too, like they're interviewing Marco uh, Hofstetter, and he says 
that like when the movie came out, they wanted act. Apparently, none of the actors were going to do like wanted to do press for this. Okay. And like he was one of the few ones to like volunteer to like voluntarily like go on like different shows and just be like, oh, I'm part of this film. And apparently, he said like days before they were supposed to do like interviews that they all got canceled. And the studio was like, no, we don't want we don't want any addition. We don't want any like publicity oh, or geez. anything like getting out about this. Like, we don't oh, want man. anything like, like like secrets because this was also it's not like not, it's not really recently that you start to hear about these things because nobody wants their dirty laundry being aired. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. One last thing about John Frankenheimer. Rob, have you ever... Because I know I, you've probably seen The Manchurian Candidate, right? The original? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. One, another one of my mother's favorite movies, next to The Thing by John Carpenter. <laughs> but have you seen Second? No. <laughs> I like the hesitation like, there. The hesitation like, was surprising. I thought there was going to be more. I thought you were going to keep talking, but is the movie just called Seconds? Yes, like like tick, as tick, in tick 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 tick. Okay, tick, now tick, it's tick, like second. Thanksgiving dinner. You go for seconds. No, I, I I wish we got that's the that's the sequel to Thanks Killing Second. That's that's the sequel that that's Thanks Killing Two Seconds, which doesn't exist yet. <laughs> we'll make that movie. Yeah, uh, that's perfect. Thanks Killing Two Seconds. seconds. Perfect. But no, the, the John Frankenheimer movie Seconds is part of like his Paranoia Man trilogy with like the Manchurian Candidate. Oh, this movie Seconds is another one there because John Frankenheimer was like a legit director. Like he was like I know in this one they kind of make him out to be washed up, mm-hmm. which he was at the time of when he agreed to do this. But Seconds is a very like I have it on Blu-ray because I've wanted to watch it forever. I got it, I think three years ago or so. It, it's a Criterion release. And I don't want to give it away. It's, it's a very Twilight Zone esque premise. Okay, but it's definitely a Rob movie. Ooh, nice. It's not like psychedelic, but sure. it definitely has some very uh, unexpected surreal elements to it. Okay, but it's definitely it's it's a cinematic. Rob would probably argue with it because there's probably some. It's like Rob's like this can't be a cinematic. It's filmed in black and white. Black and white's the most conventional thing ever. That can't be a cinemodity. But it is a um considering that was like made like in nineteen, I think sixties. I wanna say sixties. Okay. Um it, can, it also stars Rock Hudson in a very uncharacteristically Rock Hudson role. <laughs> I, it's a definite cinemodity, but no, it's kinda interesting that like a director like that who definitely understood how to do stuff like like in a weird way, I, I that's why I love it. Like ask Richard Stanley, like, oh, what do you think of like John Frankenheimer's movies, like Seconds? And it's interesting, like a man that could make Seconds is an interesting choice to be the the replacement for Richard Stanley. Yeah. Yet make such a very generic, bland film in the process. Okay. And it's interesting how somebody can actually lose their artistic vision over time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Age makes all wounds worse. That's the saying, right? I'm pretty sure. Something like that. I think we hit on all the, all the main things, all the great lines from the movie. I think we talked about all the Brando nonsense that I wanted to hit on. And we, we, hit, we hit on a little bit already about the cinemodity status, but do we want to summarize I think uh, I'm I'm teetering still. I think I'm I'm literally on the fence. I'm gonna pull a Zach and say I'm undecided. Oh, I'm on the fence. I need to wait for the Blu-ray release. <laughs> oh, the film that never got made. Yes, yes, that's what I'm saying. I'm gonna be on the fence until the Blu-ray comes out. Well, I don't I don't think you're wrong there because I think there the script has elements of weirdness, mm-hmm. and I think it all comes across in the execution because if you look at 
again, going back to hardware, is that hardware is essentially a killer robot movie. Okay. But there's so much more to it than that. It's like it's first and foremost, it's like a like a a, uh, a human drama in like the post-apocalyptic wasteland. Okay. But like it takes place like in like one set. Like it takes place like, like in one, like one apartment building, but it's really cool. Like again, it's it, it, you take because again, it's a very conventional story, mm-hmm. but it's sounds elevated. Like, sounds like Dread so far. <laughs> well, a little bit. Like, you could definitely, oh, it's funny. Richard Stanley was offered Dread, the, the Sylvester oh, Stallone movie. Oh, really? Yeah, he was actually sued by the 2000 AD people because they feel that hardware was like a knockoff of one of their short stories oh, okay and he i know like at the credits now for hardware like in the beginning and the end it says like based off the story blah from 2000 ad yeah i think he was offered uh judge dread god damn okay to direct that and he turned it down because he realized like oh god like this 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 is gonna ruin my career yeah you know so it was destined you needed to wait till dread with that who what Carl, keith urban carl urban Carl-er. Keith Urban. <laughs> I want yes. Keith Urban's dread. With his like blonde hair. That's a cinematity right there. <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, dear. But no, I think I don't think Rob is wrong. I think this is a film where, considering how Richard Stanley's el- able to elevate a lot of this stuff from like its very uh basic foundation, I think this has definitely has the potential to be a cinematity. From what we have, like we don't know because it seems like, in retrospect, or maybe not, Richard Stanley's like comp- like what's the word? Um, not compromising, but he's kind of adding like caveats, like oh, I didn't have a lot of say even before I was fired. Ah, uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. So I feel like we don't know because, like again, if this did get made, like it would have been a very compromised version of what even what he was going for. Like yeah, I firmly believe yeah. that if he if, if Richard Stanley was able had carte blanche and nobody interfered with him, whether it be the studio, the producers, the actors, I think he would have made a a great film that probably more likely than not would have been Cinematic. Yeah, I agree with you there. It has the potential, but we're never really gonna know. All right, Rob, so who are we not eating for our snack item? <laughs> so uh, I think continuing in the fashion of November, I, I I don't want to pitch snacks. I want to pitch concepts for the restaurant. I think that's where we're where we're going in this series. And so I agree with you, Zach. We're not eating uh, the smallest man in the world back in the day in the '90s or today. Anytime, uh, the only people we're eating are the people that are turned into food by the word processor of the gods for the goosebumps meal. Okay, let's make that perfectly clear. Those are the only people we're eating. Is that a good enough disclaimer, Zach? Sure. <laughs> so, so my question for you, though, because it seems to be something that uh, might be a nice theme for the Cinemodity restaurant. We have the Robin Zach waiter. We've added the Jodorowsky waiter. My question for you, Zach, is do we want a Richard Stanley waiter or do we want, I guess, and or, doesn't have to be exclusive, a Nelson De La Rosa waiter. Oh, come on. We all know the answer to that. So so give me your thoughts. Break it down. I want your thoughts on both of those. I'm asking kind of separately. What do you think? If it's an either or, it has to be Nelson De La Rosa. He it's has not, to a, it's not an either or. It could be both. It could be one. It could be neither. There I'm can not... only be one lost soul waiter. We're not just... He... 
<laughs> We're that not just adding it. waiters willy nilly. No. No, because okay, so. if that were true, we're having a Mar- we're, we're gonna have a Marlon Brando waiter that just, just stands in the kitchen by like the window where the food comes out and just eats all of it. See, I was thinking it wouldn't be a Marlon Brando waiter. We would put the Marlon Brando character next to the Orson Welles deadite and see what happens. Exactly. Yeah, but it wouldn't be a waiter. It would be an activity. So that are you saying there can only be one thing in general from a, from this documentary? I don't know because <laughs> did, is there an instance? Did Orson Welles and Marlon Brando ever work together? Uh, I I do not know off the top of my head. Were they ever in the same room together? Um, I have no knowledge of such an All event. All right, someone has okay. Someone listening has to fact check that because I think that'd be <laughs> fascinating. Tweet? Can we tweet like fact or crap? Do they have a Twitter? Uh, I, or was it like the, the truthometer? Like when it comes to like political tweets, and it's like is there some? Isn't there some number I can text and they text me back an answer like like almost immediately? Remember that was a thing? Do you remember that? Yeah, there was like some service you could text. You could text them any question. They'd get back to you. Oh. You don't remember this? Vaguely. That would be a cinematic. All right, I'll make you a deal, Rob. If Marlon Brando and Orson Welles were never in the same room together or, or not or never were like in a project or movie together, then yes, I'll let you have your activity. Okay, but in addition did, to the waiter. Yes, in addition okay, to the waiter. Okay, okay. But if they were together in any sort of project, project or any sort of like <laughs> event, then no. Uh, an event, even like a non-acting event. Well, okay. Let's say there, there's like a pie eating contest. Well, I'm, or, I'm thinking. Of, I'm thinking of a charity ball. Wherever, if there if, if there's a record of them being in the same room together, ever a picture, yes. <laughs> okay. Then no. Okay. That's a strict condition, but at least you've you've delineated it clearly. <laughs> Act, I'll leave it this way. Acting job or a photograph of them in the same room together. Otherwise, you get your restaurant. Or you get your, your event in the restaurant. Okay, okay. If But if they were together, then we you only get it. one waiter. You get one waiter. You get you get the Nelson Delarosa waiter who um, goes so around. You, but you're saying so. I guess I have to I have to hone in on this as well. You're saying Nelson Delarosa over Richard Stanley as the yes. waiter? Oh, easily. Nelson Delarosa waiter is just going to be annoying after like a week. Absolutely not. He's going to go around and punch. What he's going to do is he's going to sexually harass the clientele <laughs> by like drawing them very provocative yet childish imagery and then when people complain he's gonna punch them in the groin and in in the whole time the alejandro yorowski like waiter will just be harassing him as well oh no see i completely disagree i think we need the richard stanley waiter to read you the entire menu in one breath i think that's the clear choice that's way more intriguing that you sit down at a table at a restaurant and goes someone goes Hello, welcome to the Cinemodities restaurant. Today's specials are carrot soup with cabbage, and then we have a nice beef steak with... And just goes on for like 20 minutes, the entire menu. That's that's the clear choice as far as I'm concerned. All right, okay, we're going we're to leave it up to the listeners. AKA well, no, Pork we have Knight. to... Mark, Mark Cuban does own 1%. Zach and I only own 99%, so Mark Cuban does have a say in this. <laughs> All right, folks, you have to be the one that tells us. Which is better? The world's smallest man punching people in the junk and drawing sexual imagery of, of the clientele, which is wrong. But then when he gets spoken to, he does nothing about it. But we can't really do anything because he's the world's smallest man. 
or you have the waiter that just talks you to death. We already yeah. have one of those. It's called Jordorowski who's going to talk us you to death. You didn't sell... No, that's the Rob waiter that's going to talk you to death. <laughs> this waiter doesn't talk you to death. It talks you to death in a specific way. You didn't sell my side of the argument well, Zach. <laughs> there you go. All right, folks. I think I think the choice is clear, but... Oh, no, no. That's just, I'm, okay, I'm so glad think, we're having this discussion on Election the, Day. <laughs> think of the comedic value of the world's shortest man carrying like one of those giant like trays where all your food comes out the restaurant. Think of the comedic value. There's comedic value, but it's short-run comedic value. Think of the long-term no comedic value... Oh, it's short-term humor from a short <laughs> waiter. Oh, God. We need retention. We Rob, need every not. customer that comes into the Cinemodities restaurant, if they don't die or get turned into food, they come back. That's what we need. They're and Nelson De La Rosa will be the one who does that for Not us. they get punched in the nuts. No well, one's coming so back if they get punched in the nuts. Think of the story they'll be able to tell for the rest of their Even lives. if they I mean, get a freak DVD, they're not coming back after that. Jesus, Zach. <laughs> I think they will. I think people will be so amused by the, the, the world's shortest man who punches people in the junk who insult him. I disagree. I, I, I think that would be, fundamentally enough, that'd be a selling point. No, that is too... That is, I feel like we're in Bizarro World. We're in the Twilight Zone. I feel like in we're any in other universe, world. I would be screaming that Nelson De La Rosa punching people in the nuts is appropriate, and you would be disagreeing with me. What in have we cinema, done to ourselves? But the Cinematis <laughs> restaurant is the Bizarro World. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. I mean, no. What the? No. It, it's <laughs> useless. The Nelson De La Rosa waiter only doing that is useless. He's not like, just doing that. He's trying to serve tables, and he also gives, like, caricatures, but they're very childish and inappropriate. <laughs> and when you tell him no, when you say, like, when he comes up to you, he's like, five bucks, please, and you tell him no, it's like, buddy, get your mind out of the gutter. He gets mad, he, and he gives you a... Uh, Five finger sandwich to the pants. I still don't know why we can't have two waiters. Why we can't have both? Porque no los dos. Then, then you have to give up the Orson Welles Marlon Brando event. You can't have two. You can't have two separate things at the Cinematis restaurant. <sighs> but we have the Jodorowsky waiter and the sand pile for Dune. <laughs> no, that's that's not an event. That's just a display. Yeah, that. Oh, oh God. Okay. It's the it's the dune, the sand dune from Jodorowsky's dune. Well, why can't we put the Nelson De La Rosa uh, waiter in a cage and call that a display? And he can draw pictures from there. He's good, but he doesn't get to interact with you though. There, you're putting him behind glass. God, you're right, Zach. God damn it. Okay. He needs to be interactive. I think I think I think what Zach said, you know, I'll ask Mark Cuban his opinion. <laughs> Zach will ask the internet their opinion. We'll have to I'll see what they Port say. Knight. Because because I think Zach and I are just are just I'm gonna say it, Zach. I think we're split. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we had a heated debate about that. That was an important debate to have because, you know, the Cinemodities restaurant deserves the best, of course. The hard we only tackle the hardest of hitting questions on the exactly. Cinemodities podcast. But other than that, I did not have any actual food items. I, oh, I, have, I, have, nothing. I have one. Okay, great. That's what was going to be my next question. Let's hear it. Lost Soul, The Doom Journey of Richard Stanley's I of the Dr. Moreau Ice Bucket with ice. <laughs> That's been on Marlon Brando's head. 
Well, um, actually, okay, okay, okay. I'm, I'm going to take it one step further. Okay, when, okay. Like, because uh, the more and more I think about the Cinemati's restaurant is essentially Chuck E. Cheese. We like all the Chuck E. Cheese. No, we, have, we move in. Remember, we talked about Sin Emodities as a as a yes, branch c- off. C- yes, Cinema Sin e Like I said, <laughs> it, it's following the, the business model of Chuck E. Cheese. Okay. And what we're going to do is where we have like the dr- the drink dispenser, the the part where you get ice is shaped like or oh, is shaped like Marlon Brand. <laughs> and when you push the lever down, it comes out of his head, his little ice bucket head hat. Okay. Um. I think I understand what you're saying. You push a little lever, and like it, it, the instead of it just saying like ice, yeah, it's, it's not like, like a, just a clear funnel. It actually looks like his head with the yes. ice fucking on top. of it, it might be upside down, so like the ice that, can come out of it. That was what I was getting getting at. Is it upside down? Is so is is the f- ice coming out of the hat at the end of this? Yes. Button? Okay. Or See, if you want, there's a spout that lets you put the ice back in, so you can actually replicate the experience. You can put the ice back in? So you can do what you did. Technically, he gives the ice and you give the so, ice back. Well, well, well. hold on. So so a little kid could come into the Cinemodities or Cinemodities portion of the restaurant and they can get some ice from Marlon Brando's head, suck on it for a while, and then put it back in the machine? Is that no, 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 no. Marlon Brando would not allow you to suck on ice and put it in his, like, his, his, his hat. Well, then how do we filter this out? Do we have... Are you saying that we need, instead of putting Marlon Brando next to Orson Welles, we put him as a guard in front of this fountain drink machine to make sure this just, doesn't happen? I'd figure it was the honor system, but sure, that works as well. The honor system, there is no way the honor system's going to work in the Cinemodities restaurant or the Cinemodities branch, ever. Oh no God. honor system. There's no way the honor system's going to work. You better believe we know how much fucking caviar you took from the goddamn fountain out of the wall. We know. We know, okay? What, what, what we do is we weigh you before you come in. And as you leave, we weigh you. And we calculate the weightage of the caviar. Yeah, we, we've calculated everything. You know, we're calculating how much the freak DVD co- uh, weighs when you're holding that on the way out. We've calculated it all. I see where you're going with this snack sack. I... I like that it's it's a theme on a fountain drink machine, but my next, I think the next natural question would be, why don't we have someone's, somebody's head for all of the dispensers, not just the ice, but all the drinks as well? How would you do that? How would you correlate with each of their, like, each of their heads with a beverage? I mean, are you saying that because you want the customer to know what drink they're getting? Well, but you'd think, like, okay, if the customer, so the customer just goes up to, like, eight different, like, Lost soul character, like <laughs> head dispensers. Like, I, I was, this is. I wasn't like, thinking it, lost soul, but that's a great idea. A little kid goes up and goes, "Mommy, I want Val Kilmer." <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, "No, you're having Brando. It's ice." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. That's a great idea. Actually, what what soft drink flavor would Val Kilmer in Island of Doctor Moreau be? <laughs> there's a very, there's a very specific correct answer. Oh God, I, I was about to say I have no idea. Now Zach's making me feel worse that I have no idea. <laughs> okay, considering that he's very sweaty and he has his shirt off and he's like wearing like sunglasses with his hair like gelled like up backwards. Okay, it would have to be Mountain Dew. <laughs> okay, Do- not do- not Doctor Pib. <laughs> Maybe, Mr. maybe. Mr. Pib, is it Dr. Pib or Mr. Pib? Mr. Mr. Pib, Pib, right? Okay, Mr. Pib. 
Rob, do we have an official like uh, drink of the Sin E Modities restaurant? The Sin E Modities being the kids' Chuck E. Cheese portion. Yes. Do we have like the official beverage? Like, like the NFL has the like Papa John's is the official like pizza of the NFL. What's the official soft drink? I don't know if you're gonna Sin- like. I don't know if you're gonna like what I'm gonna say, Zach. But RC Cola. Mm, child small antifreeze. <laughs> what brand of antifreeze? That's up for debate. Maybe we can license that out. That's find a awful. Bit. That's I think I, that might be the most um, oddly enough of all God, the nonsense. Rob, like in, in the same podcast where Rob advocated feeding cigarettes to cats. That's, um, that's up in the air. Right? That's up to a personal opinion. If you think I advocated that, okay. Folks, go, Go back and listen to the Cowboy Bebop yes, episode. Cowboy he Bebop. clearly advocates for that. No, it is it is it is up to interpretation. But considering what Rob said there, the fact that he's now advocating in a children's restaurant to have child-sized antifreeze as a beverage yes. as the official beverage. Yes. That might be the new low of this podcast. It's on the table with the bread before you even get there. <laughs> <laughs> you have, you're telling me you have a little like dispenser at every single table? Oh yeah, yeah, hundred um, percent. Because antifreeze isn't that expensive, right? He's despicable, folks. He's truly Zach, despicable. Zach is like, <laughs> how do how do I distance myself? How do I get cinemodities and Rob gets cinemodities? <laughs> as long as I get the dune from the sand dune from Jodorowsky's dune, I'll be happy. No, un- honestly, this the sin e modities portion, this child's portion, that can fail as far as I'm concerned. I'm dedicated to the restaurant, Zach. I like the child restaurant. I like. I know. That. Well, then, yeah. Then, what would you want the official drink to be? Since you want customers, Mister Entrepreneur, <laughs> medium antifreeze. <laughs> that makes <laughs> it a little bit better. So, Rob, how are we going to end this episode? Continuing on, maybe with the uh, N in Spirity Complex intro backwards? What do you think? I think think we get on board with that. Okay, right on. And I guess before we end it, is it finally the time that our next episode in November won't won't be about November? I guess other than Clementine Shelf, which we have no idea when it's releasing. Yes, depending on National Aquarium Day. (laughs) Yes, Zach blew my mind. I think Zach might want to release it on that day just to rub it in my face. So next time, we're going to have a uh, special Thanksgiving episode, right? Yep. It's going to be F-U-N fun. Oh, I'm so excited. I can't wait. It's going to be a holiday extravaganza. Get your turkey legs ready. You didn't waste it at all. I'll give you three episodes of Law and Order anytime you want. Hold on a sec. I'm hearing a noise outside. Hold on a sec. I gotta. Uh-oh. I die. Keep in mind. Uh... <laughs> Remember me as the hateful person I am. <laughs> I, I, I'm so glad you said something because you literally said, "If I die, oh," uh, and then stop talking. <laughs> Remember me as the hateful person I am. Okay, the cats. The cats are having fun downstairs.
Don't tell me. Don't don't tell me you in the box. They're having fun. How could you possibly know they're having fun? If you saw the way they look right now, you'd know that they're having a good time. Right, what are you, the, the cat whisperer? You can pick up on animals' emotions just by looking at them? If, if you've had an animal long enough, you know their emotions. You also okay, Zach, then what's my emotion right now? Look at me. You're not, yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a blend of impairment and, and, and cynicism. That's fair. That's fair. There's orange in there as well. <laughs> All right, this, this is going to be fun B-roll. The cinemodity status of this movie. Are you okay, okay with that? I, I am prepared. Do you have to take a break? Bum, 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 <laughs> bum. While, while, while we figure out if you take a break, we're going to play the Golden Girls theme right now. Okay. Thank you for being a friend. Bun, dun, dun, dun. Travel down the road and back again. My heart is true. You're a pal and a confidant. Thank you for being a friend. Bum, 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 bum. And if you threw a party, <laughs> invited everyone you knew. I did. I like, I like smushed the beginning and the end of the theme song together. You <laughs> would see the biggest gift would be from me. And the card attached would say, thank you for being a friend. Bum, 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 bum. All right, I think that's I think that's a nice uh, uh, transition point for our uh, audience. But no, I don't. I have probably at least another another eight minutes or so. So uh, eight cinema, whole minutes. <laughs> eight whole minutes in Argentinian time. Minutes. That's like three. <laughs> Argentinian time. Well, yes, Zach. Like I said, I think I want to talk about cinematic status.